Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti-Vietnam War and anti-conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, this is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast for clarity and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. I got into start. terrible arguments with one of the teachers <laughs> who thought that um, the war was a good thing, that the communists had to be stopped at any cost. Um, he was from Eastern Europe, I think, and he, w- he was staunchly anti-communist. Yeah. Something that surprised me when I started seriously looking into this era was the fact that high school students were involved in protesting. As a high school teacher myself, this actually shouldn't have been surprising, given the number of students who have been involved in protesting, particularly around climate change, even in my time. Nonetheless, it wasn't something that had occurred to me. But as you'll hear, the issue of the Vietnam War and of conscription was a live one for at least some female secondary students. This episode features Elizabeth, Julie, Liz, Janet, Vivian, Jill and Fiona. They were born between 1948 and 1954 and were, obviously, at high school during this period. As you heard at the start from Elizabeth Jackson, some girls found themselves in a school milieu where their opinions were in a minority. On the other hand, some of my interviewees remembered a supportive environment, or at least a tolerant one. Julie Harper, now Julie Stafford, had parents who were members of the Communist Party. And I can't remember if I initiated it or the other young person did, but I must have been 12 or 13 when there was a letter in the local paper. I think he initiated it and supported our involvement in Vietnam and I wrote a a 12-year-old reply to which he then replied. So we had this two two fortnights in a row of um, published letters, which I did keep and I've got somewhere and I tried to find them very quickly see what they were like I probably shrivel with embarrassment now but uh, but yeah so even at that age um I certainly was aware I think it was year 11 or 12 I can't remember but I took a whole bunch of um anti-war badges to school and sold them to the year 11s and 12 students and and I only recall that clearly because one person quite quite gladly 
bought it, bought a badge and put it on. Um, and the next day she came back to me and asked if she could have her money back and if I could take the badge back because her parents had told her they refused to let her wear it. <laughs> and it's funny because that person became, uh, went to the same uni as me and um, we became, I still see her, we became friends and, um, yeah, we still have a chuckle over that. The fact that she she wasn't prepared to stand up for what she believed in because her parents um, said, "No way, give it back. You're not wearing that." Did Lefty react in any way to you selling them? Uh, no, I think they were used to the Harpers. They they sort of knew the the Harpers, so no, they I, I don't recall. Sometimes discussion of the Vietnam War was something that the school itself or individual teachers at the school, were encouraging. In her book about the history of Loretto College in Melbourne, called A Row of Goodly Pearls, Jane Carolyn recalls discussions about the morality of the war in Vietnam, as well as other contemporary issues like civil rights and scholarships for Aboriginal students. Loretto is a Catholic girls' school in Melbourne, and another girls' school, Presbyterian Ladies' College, or PLC, printed a student poem in their 1971 yearbook called Forgotten, which begins, O soldier, when you went to war, did they cry? It's an adolescent poem to be sure, and as an English teacher, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that the student had studied Wilfred Owen's Dulce et Decorum Est poem that year but it does tell you that this sort of thing was seen as acceptable by the school. A few years earlier, in the 1966 PLC yearbook, there's a note about a talk given by the Victorian president of the RSL, that's the Returned Servicemen's League, uh, Brigadier Hall. While he focused on the effects of the war on the South Vietnamese and the importance of Australian troops being there, The yearbook notes that, and I quote, many girls did not agree with Brigadier Hall and voiced their opinions during question time. Liz Porter, who attended Methodist Ladies College, or MLC, remembers a similar occasion in 1968. And one Friday, the American ambassador came to speak. And I think that was when we were in year 12, it must have been. And I remember getting up and asking the question, something along the lines of, why does the American government feel always compelled to interfere um, in the uh, uh, political arrangements of um, other smaller countries, um, you know, from South America through to right now Vietnam? And I don't remember his answer. And all I remember, what I do remember is this sense that I had done something terrible. Uh, the, the, the vibe I got from the teachers later, even though nothing specifically was said, I wasn't really um, called in and kind of told that I was, I'd been terribly rude, but that was the vibe I got. I remember feeling, because I was only 16, uh, and probably quite a young 16 in a way. The fact I remember it says heaps, I think. In the 1968 edition of the MLC yearbook, which was called Silver and Green, Porter had a piece called Student Unrest, Idealism Against the Establishment. In it, she discusses student, quote, genuine disillusionment with society. 
She continued, Particularly the issue of the Vietnam War has encouraged this student dissatisfaction and feeling of impatience in the face of an unjust war, perpetuated by a corrupt capitalist society personified in the America of LBJ. Students feel, as of course do others that are older, that the war is scandalously unjust and contrary to all humanitarian considerations, and feel further frustrated by not having a vote to do anything about it. Porter told me that she'd actually forgotten all about writing this piece, and it's entirely possible, of course, that it was written as a set exercise rather than being motivated purely from a desire to communicate her feelings. Nonetheless, the fact that a 17-year-old had access to these ideas and language does tell you something about their milieu. A couple of years before Porter, Diane Walker wrote a piece called Is Conscription to Vietnam Desirable? And it concludes with the statement, Obviously Australia's intervention in Vietnam is unjustified and conscripts should not be forced to take part in another country's struggle for peace. Janet McCalman was also a student at MLC. In 1966, she wrote the debating notes section for the college yearbook, noting both, quote, an increasing concern with politics, in particular the Vietnamese War, and that some students at the school had attended, quote, a talk given by Dr. J.F. Cairns about the Vietnamese War. This proved to be both stimulating and useful, end quote. She remembers her school experience like this. Was the Vietnam War a topic that was discussed at school amongst students or between students and teachers? Yes, a lot, and particularly my final year was 1966, and that was Dr Wood's final year as principal. He was a clergyman, so he also took scripture classes. And in uh, year 12, he took the year 12s, what we call matric in those days, and he devoted really the whole year to talking about politics in Vietnam and about that the domino theory was nonsense and uh, now you'd need to check this with even people like Brian Howe, but uh, the, as I understood it, the Methodist Conference had condemned conscription for Vietnam. Uh, and I remember that a lot of the teachers signed a petition against conscription for Vietnam. Uh, so it was talked about formally in class. And interestingly, we had a lot of Chinese girls from Malaysia and, um, I mean, at that time, the enemy was seen as China. You know, the 1966 election in black and white television just had poor little white Australia and this terrible black mass looming over us from the top of the, of the screen. So there was sort of going to be a sort of gra- gravity effect that this would all pour into Australia, which I suppose has always been the fear of the Asian menace and that this was going to be inevitable, that the communism was taking over the world, and that's how people were brainwashed. That's the narrative that Australian people had. So to counter that narrative was brave. And, you know, a number of the Chinese girls, I remember saying in one class, you know, that they, the Vietnamese, 
or you know they weren't Vietnamese. They must have been Malaysian Chinese. But the idea that the government of North Vietnam was being run by China was ridiculous, because there was such an historical antipathy towards the Chinese in Vietnam. So you know that was a nonsense. So that came out in a class from students. I mean, what their narrative was was one of national liberation. Vivian Santa was also a student at MLC at this time. She contributed an article to the December 1966 edition of the yearbook, Silver and Green, and I asked her to read it aloud. Uh, this is an article written in December 1966 for, the, uh, for Silver and Green, the magazine of Methodist Ladies College, Hawthorne. And it was written when I was in the sixth form. The Dilemma in Vietnam. For 25 years, ever since the Japanese overran Southeast Asia, war has been the dominating factor for life in Vietnam. War between the nationalist Viet Minh and the French colonial forces, culminating in the battle for Dien Bien Phu, was followed in 1954 by a settlement at Geneva which divided the country into two parts. Since then, there has been continual fighting between the South Vietnamese government forces and Viet Cong guerrillas. Foreigners are always present, advising governmental troops or actually taking part in the conflict. For some time now, Australian troops, including conscripts, have played a part in the struggle. In defence of this policy, it is argued that a non-communist South Vietnam is vital to the security of Australia and the Western nations. That if South Vietnam falls, the rest of Southeast Asia will inevitably follow, paving a way for a communist invasion of this country. It is said that as a member of the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation, CETO, Australia is committed to the defence of South Vietnam that Australia has a moral obligation to support the United States and that as a nation country, Australia should have an important voice in Asian affairs. It is also claimed that if Australia did not send troops to Vietnam, the USA would not come to the defence of Australia in the event of an attack on that nation. This last statement is invalidated by the fact that the USA came to the aid of Vietnam when that country had absolutely no claim on it. Australia is important to the United States because of her trade and because she's the only highly developed non-communist nation in Asia. If America will fight for Korea or Vietnam, it is reasonable to suppose that it will fight for Australia also. Perhaps the strongest of the arguments advanced is that concerning the security of this country. This rests on the assumption that if communist Chinese dominance is inevitable and that China aims to conquer Asia. However, in the 17 years since liberation, China's history has been almost unmarked by attempts at expansion. Vietnam's history is one of resistance to China. The specific reasons for the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong military pressure to the south are an urgent need for food supplies to supplement the poor northern rice crop, the desire to avoid subordination to China, and the personal ambition of Ho Chi Minh. If North Vietnam controlled the South as well, 
it could stand on its own feet without Russian or Chinese support, whether economic or military. It must be remembered that besides being a communist, Ho Chi Minh is a Vietnamese nationalist. All along, the initiative has been from North Vietnam. There have been no Russians or Chinese in actual combat, and it is wrong to assume that China is the guiding influence. In fact, almost all the support for the North comes from Russia. Earlier this year, China refused to allow Russian arms destined for North Vietnam to be sent through Chinese territory. A communist united Vietnam could form a buffer state, likely Yugoslavia, between China and the rest of Southeast Asia. With regard to Australia's defence commitments in South Vietnam, it must be remembered that South Vietnam is not a member of CETO and is prohibited from joining it by the terms of the Geneva Accord. The only other CETO members besides Australia who are taking any action in Vietnam are the United States, New Zealand and the Philippines. Britain, France and the other Asian members are conspicuously absent. The Philippines has only recently sent a token force of about 700. Australia's armed support of corrupt and dictatorial regimes in South Vietnam must cause more loss of face among other nations, particularly those of Africa and Asia, than could any non-military action. There are better methods than warfare for combating communism. The examples of Malaya, where between 1952 and 1957, Accelerated constitutional advances leading to complete independence within the Commonwealth defeated the communist insurgents. And of the Philippines, where the administration of President Ramon Magsese made sweeping reforms and almost eliminate the Hucks, showed that it is possible to defeat the communists by removing the grievance on which their appeal rests. If Australia must intervene in the Vietnam conflict, the provision of economic, agricultural and medical assistance would have more beneficial and more far-reaching effect than would military action. Other schools and teachers also encourage students to consider these issues. Some people in the following excerpts refer to matric or matriculation. Uh, That's the name that's given to the final year of high school. My journey started when I was doing my matriculation year at a private girls' school in Melbourne, and both my parents fairly conservative, and I had a a history teacher who, politics, political science teacher, who was wonderful, and she, she discussed the Vietnam War. So we're talking 1967, and I was outraged, and I really started to get involved and have a look at it. Another school with some students involved in protesting was the Select Entry Government School, McRobertson Girls High School, usually known as McRob. Now, I have an advantage here in in accessing material because my mother-in-law attended McRob and still had some of her yearbooks from 1966 through to 1969. I'm really sorry, future historians. I do not have any of my yearbooks from Nightcliff High, where I attended. In 1966, Molly, in Form 6, which is the equivalent of Year 12, so matriculation, had a short, somewhat odd piece, sorry Molly, called Mirror on Vietnam, published. It speaks of a night 
convincing peasants that they have to join him in fighting disease and becoming tall and strong like him. I assume the knight is America and the squire is Australia and the peasants are the South Vietnamese or something like that. At the end, the knight is covered in um, pussy running sores, which I assume is meant to reflect the Americans not doing well in Vietnam, but I'm really not sure. The point is that the war is clearly on the mind of a girl in the final year of high school in 66. On the same page of that yearbook, Katie, also in Form 6, Year 12, reflects on a documentary she watched about, quote, what was really going on. She doesn't seem to have come out of it completely opposed to the war, but she does mention that she now knows atrocities are committed by both sides, not, quote, only by the Viet Cong, that is, the communists of South Vietnam, and she also has a greater awareness of the suffering of the Vietnamese people. In 1967, Pam, in Form 6, has a spiky piece called Does War Serve a Useful Purpose? Which, I admit, does sound like a topic set by an English teacher. She starts with the sentence, War is one of the safety valves of an exploding population, which is a bit shocking, frankly. And then the rest of the piece winds its way to conclude with the sentence, War can serve a useful purpose only for those who attain power, yet their very desire for power must eventually cause their own destruction, making an empty mockery of all they thought they had achieved. So it's a year 12 attempt at being shocking and then reversing the argument initially suggested, and again shows that the issue of war is on the mind. Finally, in the yearbooks in 1968 and 69, students used poetry to discuss the war. Jill in Form 4 in 1968, so Year 10, wrote a short piece called Protest, which finishes with the lines, Black faces, red faces, yellow and white, join in union to fight and protest. The next year, Sue used that student favourite, The Acrostic. Why condemn anarchy and rape yet propagate this? Voids in endless time, nothing at all for man. And the first letter of each line spells War Vietnam. Lastly, on the topic of Macrob, in an archival box from the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament, I found a note dated the 28th of May 1971. It specifies that Lynn Berlin, I think that's right, the handwriting was a bit hard to read, she is authorised by the McRobertson Girls High Moratorium Committee to act as the delegate at the May 31st meeting. And perhaps this is in the lead up to the third moratorium in 1971. This means, obviously, that the school had a moratorium committee, which may well have started the year before when the first moratorium was getting off the ground. And it shows that students were actively involved beyond their own school grounds. Finally, this is Gwen Godeka reflecting on the experience of her son, who was attending a government school called University High. They, uh, all the, a great number of the students from University High 
joined one of the great peace marches in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. So the principal sent letters to us all, us parents, saying that our our um, sons and daughters had been suspended from the school until further notice. <laughs> so I think it was a, a week or two, two weeks anyway, and they they um, had to take them back again. <laughs> didn't last that long, but it showed you the really backward mentality of some people in high places, didn't it? That they would suspend children from school because mm. they, they took an anti-war stand. My thanks to Gwen's daughter, Pauline Jones, for providing this audio. I assume that Gwen here is referring to the May 1970 moratorium, as it seems clear that there were indeed a lot of students involved in that. Their participation was aided by the fact that in 1970, Victoria's schools were on a three-term system, and the end of Term 1 was the 8th of May, the day of the moratorium. This meant that many schools would have finished early that day and in turn means it would have been easier for high school students to go to the moratorium. The Age newspaper reported in April 1970 that, quote, a stream of anti-Vietnam war literature is going into Victorian secondary schools seeking student support for the Vietnam moratorium mass march. That article quotes Vera Boston, an organiser for Students for a Democratic Society and student at Melbourne University, saying that students had a right to hear about the anti-war case. These interviews don't, of course, reflect the whole gamut of school students involved in the protest. And as is always the case, there will have been plenty of students who were ignorant of what was going on outside of their own social lives, and plenty of students who supported the Australian involvement in the war, just as there was in the broader population. This episode shows, though, that at least some female high school students in Melbourne were very engaged in the protest movement. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women, Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, Maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. You can find a complete list of them on my website, womenconscriptionwar.com, as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother Glenn Tomasetti's music in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast. Music